Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. So, um, in Egypt, we probably have a sort of correlation between the Arabization of the region and the uh, rate of conversion to Islam, um, particularly from Coptic Christianity. In other places, um, there is probably some correlation. We also can witness a decline of the Syriac language um, and a shift uh, from a Syriac vernacular to a Syriac liturgical context. So the language Syriac, which is sort of cousin of Aramaic, which was the dialect um, that many Christians in um, areas of Syria and Iraq, uh, particularly northern Iraq, were using um, as their sort of everyday language, um, changed from a vernacular to sort of a liturgical language associated with the um, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Syriac Church, um, and in some cases the Church of the East. Um, and we see this shift happening over the course of several centuries so that by the end of the 13th century, um, Syriac is... Um, we find very, very few records of Syriac after the 13th century. It seems to be used as a, a written language um, regularly only until that point, and it starts declining significantly as of the 9th century. Um, and so this also sort of reflects in some ways um, Egypt's shift. Um, Coptic first stops being used as a vernacular language and is reduced only to a liturgical language. <clears throat> and then after that becomes um, much less frequently used. Excuse me. Um, so what we can say is that um, the area is mostly Muslim by the time the Crusaders arrive. We know, or at least we, from what we can tell, um, by the 11th, 12th centuries common era, um, so roughly the, what is that, the 5th-ish century history, um, the area is by any sort of accounts, and this is sort of usually sort of passing observations, the area is majority Muslim. Um, and in cases where you do have Christians, you have minorities in the cities, and then you have sort of villages here and there where the entire village or the entire sort of local community has decided either to remain Christian or has decided to convert en masse. Um, and often these are sort of groups that are practicing sometimes their own sort of um, non-standard or non-orthodox form of Christianity, um, even by the standards of um, very, very sort of Eastern Christian sects, um, and sometimes with Muslim or Islamic elements sort of brought into um, worship. And so you do see these sort of, um, in very rural areas, um, almost like the sort of hybrid religion. Um, and of course, this horrifies both Muslim authorities and Christian authorities, right? Um, but we do have some evidence of it. Um, and when, you know, people from outside the village come in and see what these people are doing, they immediately tell them, no, 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 you're doing, you know, you're practicing our religion wrong. Uh, here's how you do this properly, right? So um, we see a, a very mixed bag, um, but certainly by the end of this sort of early medieval period, by the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, we have a, probably a um, majority, um, if you know, in the 11th century, like just barely a majority, you, you have a majority of, of Muslims in the region by that point. But beyond that, we can't really tell what the rate is per se of conversion um, and how that changed during the early period.
in the earlier period, I understand why some people might convert, but later on, the years passed, um, were there different reasons to convert? I mean, was I mean, I noticed that you had mentioned that a couple hundred years after these conquests, um, the rate of conversion in that span has started to increase. And mm -hmm. I mean, this is also the time where a lot of Islamic sciences are being standardized. Is there any relationship right. between the two? I think so. I think by this point, it is becoming much clearer to people um, what Islam is and what it requires of you. Um, and um, and sort of the, the beliefs that are a part of Islam that are very distinct from the beliefs of um, Judaism or Christianity. Um, and so, I mean, you even see the emergence of um, interfaith debates, um, often held by the caliph or a local or a governor um, or an administrator and emir, um, in which people, representatives from different religions, will actually debate um, sort of whose religion is superior. And of course, um, non-Muslim um, participants in that debate had to be very careful about what they said, um, while also trying to argue on behalf of their religion. Um, and sometimes you see conversions happening in these debates, which of course, you know, their written form in, in the context that we have them is almost certainly very stylized um, and may or may not actually represent a real debate. Um, but you have cases where people in the audience will convert, usually to Islam, um, as a result of witnessing the debate. Um, we also have um, cases where um, people have this sort of mystical experience um, that inspires them to convert, um, usually to Islam, sometimes um, in fewer cases um, to um, convert to Christianity from Islam, but usually, or to Judaism from Islam, but usually um, people have these sort of mystical experiences where um, they hear the Quran being spoken uh, or being recited and um, uh, they, they sort of see a light or feel something very powerful within them and, and that is their motivation. So we see increasing sort of um, accounts of religious motivations, purely religious motivations um, for converting. But we also, I mean, it is also quite possible that, you know, this shift from a, um, from Islam as a majority, as a minority religion to Islam as a majority religion happens as a result of sort of demographic change. Um, certainly, um, you know, if you are a um, Jewish or Christian woman, you do not have to convert in order to marry a Muslim man, but your children, any children that you have, will be raised Muslim. Um, so there's that demographic shift, it, um, the fact that Muslim men can have more than one wife, um, whereas Christian and Jewish men cannot also, you know, has an effect on the sort of changing demographics of the region. Um, but certainly conversion um, is a powerful, powerful um, sort of change maker in terms of the religious makeup of the Middle East. Um, so we do see more circumstances that are religious um, in terms of conversion. Um, but again, you know, not to be a cynic, but we can never really know what, what somebody's um, motivations are, you know, um, and so religious experiences uh, may or may not actually reflect what caused somebody to convert. Just like, you know, if somebody are, say that social or economic advantage um, caused them to convert, there may also have been a religious motivation that was not advantageous to reveal, right? Um, you never really know why um, somebody chooses to convert. Um, but certainly we see a, a number of different um, types of conversions um, or conversion narratives emerging during this period.
Now we we're discussing uh, languages. So what were the languages of the of the areas that the Muslims conquered? And then how, how right. did how did Arabic become a popular language? How did people learn Arabic? Right. Okay. So the you know, at the onset of the Muslim conquest, um, Arabic was spoken, you know, in the Arabian Peninsula mostly, um, although it certainly wasn't the only language spoken in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, our two major empires, the Byzantine Empire, um, the official language of the Byzantine Empire was Greek, but of course there were a number of uh, regional languages that were spoken as a vernacular and sometimes liturgical language. Um, and that would include, as I've mentioned, um, Coptic in, um, in Egypt, that would include Syriac in areas of the Levant um, and even in northern Iraq. Um, we don't really get into the Anatolian Peninsula, um, the Anatolian Peninsula isn't actually doesn't actually become Muslim until the 11th century um, Common Era, um, and so um, and in fact there is a, um, a a border between the the Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire that is sort of um, continually bombarded in during the Abbasid era by these these caliphs um, who are seeking to um, sort of expand into the Anatolian Peninsula. So Turkish is also not really um, it becomes a language um, of some military groups, particularly military elites, um, during the Abbasid Caliphate, but for the most part, um, it is not a major language. Certainly during the early period, it is not really a major language. Um, in the Sasanian Empire, um, Persian or Farsi was and continues to be the official language of most of that, that territory. Um, I mean, Iraq now speaks Arabic, but um, Persian never, or Arabic never replaced Persian um, or Farsi as the the vernacular language in that region ever, um, and we know this was partly due to um, an increased interest in Persian culture and Persian um, language and literature and poetry um, during the um, late Umayyad and particularly early Abbasid periods um, after that region had been conquered. Um, Whereas during this set, that same time period, um, in former Byzantine territories, Arabic was beginning to gain um, popularity um, due to the fact that it had been made a, the official language of the empire. Um, so that we see different sort of effects of language um, in different regions. Um, in terms of conversion, I mean, like I said, I think that there is a relationship between increased use of Arabic and outside of the context of the Sasanian Empire, former Sasanian Empire, um, and Persian-speaking regions, I think that there is a significant relationship between the increased use of Arabic and the, and the expansion um, of the sort of Muslim population or the, the increased um, rate of conversion from what we can tell um, in those areas. Um, once you become Muslim, I mean, there is really not any reason to um, continue using a language that is associated with the religion that you just left. Um, certainly you would continue to use it if you were, say, a sole convert among your family, you would continue to use that language, but you might raise your children, you know, with a focus on Arabic, right? Um, and so, right, there is, um, so that's sort of the situation um, in the caliphate, um, both prior to and then during the early Islamic period. And so bilingualism was a thing then. I mean, a lot of people must have known multiple languages and I mean, oh. how quickly were they picking up these languages? Sorry, say that last question again. And how quickly were they picking up these languages or Arabic? Right. So 
I'll use Syria as an example. Um, in the context of Syria, um, you might have people who were speaking Syriac as their vernacular, um, who also knew Greek as the official language of the empire. Um, if they were living during the middle of the 7th century, then they saw the language of empire um, continue on as Greek after the Muslim conquest until the late 7th century when it was suddenly switched to Arabic. Um, but for those decades in the middle, um, middle to sort of late 7th century, you often had um, bilingual documents. Um, you had Greek documents, um, official documents, posted in both Greek and Arabic. Um, and so bilingualism or even tri trilingualism was incredibly common. Um, and people who wanted to join the, the administration or continue on it um, as the, you know, in the administration would have to learn Arabic by default. Um, and so um, it was very common for people to know two languages, three languages, or to acquire a third language or even more languages, if you, especially if you traveled, um, in order to survive in that sort of um, social and political context. Um, so, yeah, many people learned Arabic um, to advance their careers, uh, and then this had an effect on sort of which languages increasingly became used, um, not only in sort of official contexts, but in, in unofficial ones as well. Understood. And I'm moving on. The apocalyptic fervor that was, you know, pretty strong and a driving force of a lot of the early conquests. At what point does it start to die down? I mean, you're 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 starting to utilize the administrative structures of these empires. I mean, that's done so that you can create some type of lasting. Uh, you can you know have a lasting presence in these areas. So really, at what point does this apocalyptic fervor die down? Right. So there are a lot of different theories about this. And of course, apocalypticism never really ceases to exist. Um, but it dies down after the early period. I'd say it dies down pretty evidently by the end of the 7th century common era, by the late 1st century history. Certainly by the like Umayyad period, by the middle of the Umayyad period, it, it sort of winds down a little bit. You don't see that being as much of a um, a motivating factor, although it does emerge again with the rise of the Abbasids. A few decades into the Abbasid era, you see this um, massive uptick in apocalypticism that coincides with um, the year 200 history. And um, this is also associated with a zeal to kind of move into the Anatolian Peninsula and take over Constantinople. Um, but for the most part, in the early period, this dies down um, with the Umayyads. Um, of course, by this point, we have, you know, an army that may or may not be sort of, um, or maintaining an army may or may not be an end unto itself in terms of the conquest, right? Um, but um, it is a major, major factor during the Rashidun era um, and possibly during the early Umayyad eras, and then I think it calms down after that. Okay, because that can be good for business. I mean, if everyone's thinking that, you know, the Day of Judgment is right around the corner. Right. In terms of an administration, still, I mean, kind of the day-to-day -day things, I mean, was there, like, widespread chaos uh, when these types of things were happening? Like, how exactly did this affect the average person? Right. So, in the early period, of course, I've talked about the, I mean, I don't mean to paint this, the picture, a picture of early sort of Islamic society as totally chaotic, right? And, like, you know, the, the like, um, dark horse of the apocalypse is sort of running through the streets or anything like that. Um 
but there was quite a lot of confusion in terms of, of how things were run. Um, and I think, I mean, I tend to, to identify the sort of major shift from sort of a, um, an early period in which people aren't really sure what this empire should be and, you know, um, what it should look like, um, to a shift to a sort of, um, fairly standard structure. I, I pinpoint this to Abdul Malik. Um, honestly, he is not the sole person responsible for the sort of standardization of the bureaucracy, um, under the caliphate. Um, Abdul Malik reigned from, um, 685 to 705, uh, common era. And, um, he did implement, though, a number of different reforms that standardized coinage. They, he implemented Arabic as the standard language of the administration. Um, he um, sent out reform or re-standardized the sort of review of the sort of standard um, sort of um, script of the Quran and made sure that everybody, you know, every major center of um, the, the caliphate had a standardized Quran and an, sort of an officially sanctioned one, uh, which reduced sort of um, the number or like the, um, the number of sort of variant readings. Um, and he also was the one who implemented the census. So there wasn't an attempt to sort of clean up this, this chaos, right? Um, and so I pinpoint this shift to him. Um, and I think that this is also sort of as these apocalyptic tensions are sort of dying down. Um, but other scholars have argued the opposite, that he, he does so um, in part out of a, a concern that um, the apocalypse is imminent. Um, and so, um, and that is partly why he builds the Dome of the Rock, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think at this point, apocalypticism is sort of is sort of dying down as a popular movement. Um, you do, again, like I said, see an uptick of it during the Abbasid period. Um, that coincides with the bringing in of um, Turkish horsemen into the military. Um, and like I said, coincides with a sort of increased fervor for taking over the Anatolian Peninsula and sort of reaching Constantinople. Um, but that's sort of a, a secondary concern. But that also um, is the start of this maybe increase in, in conversion. So, you know, maybe there's something there that hasn't been examined yet. But, yeah. And what about people who weren't uh, Muslim? I mean, the people uh, with whom the Muslims were, I guess, interacting. Did they ever see this as some type of sign of the apocalypse? That, you know, you have a bunch of these people from, you know, the deserts coming out to, you know, raid and, co and conquer us. How did this play into their own worldview? Oh, yeah. So the early Islamic conquests were absolutely a sign of the apocalypse to non-Muslims, um, uh, to people in, you know, these territories that the, con that the caliphate quickly expanded into. Um, they absolutely see the Arabs as sort of the, the harbingers of the apocalypse um, during the 7th century. Um, this is recorded in, I mean, throughout um, the Middle East. It's recorded in records from Egypt, in from records from Syria, in records... Um, from Iraq and Iran, um, this is not a universal sentiment, but a, a fairly common one. Um, because otherwise, you know, I mean, we've talked about the Sasanian Byzantine Wars now quite a bit, but, you know, after seeing all of these wars happen for, at this point, it would have been generations of, of people. Um, and so, you know, then they sort of die down. Suddenly now there, you know, there's these people coming from the South, you know, can we tie this to, um, you know, scriptural description. Can we tie this to sort of um, 
religious in you know understandings our own religious understandings of you know what's supposed to what the apocalypse is supposed to be is this like a you know the beast from you know the south or the sea or you know um how can we make sense of this and often yeah, the apocalypse is, is how people made sense of, of the, the early conquest so what was the relationship between the rulers and the ruled i mean was there any racism um and i know that's that's perhaps not the most appropriate term but how right. did they view uh, the people that they ruled, how did they view non-Muslims? How did Muslims view non-Muslims at this period? I mean, what was what was the day-to-day -day life like? Okay, so for the most part, we are dealing with, you know, the materials that we have that come from these time periods, which are, um, for the most part, historical documents, um, or to a lesser extent, um, maybe literary documents. But, you know, I mean, we... We can't actually place ourselves there completely. So, in terms of the way rulers viewed non-Muslims, um, this sort of depends on the time period. So, in the conquest era, we certainly know that um, not only sort of declaring yourself Muslim, converting, if we can say that, um, but becoming a part of the movement um, had an effect on your social standing um, in ways beyond sort of what we've just talked about, um, like, you know, converting after the, the empire, sort of the caliphate is in place. During the conquest period, how early you became a part of this new religious movement has a direct effect on your social standing, and it has a direct effect, particularly if you're in the army, on how much money you make. Um, the um, Duan, the register sort of, of who was in the army um, and what they should be paid, um, was structured based on when somebody converted. So... Um, if you were from a tribe, or if you were um, from Mecca and you, you know, joined the movement early, um, went with Muhammad to Medina, um, fought in the Battle of Badr, you received one of the highest, if not the highest, um, sort of tier of salaries um, from the army. If you had converted after Mecca had been sort of reconquered in 630, um, but, you know, not particularly late, then maybe you were sort of in a, a middle tier, right? Um, and if you were part of, say, one of the um, tribes that had been sort of staunchly Jewish or staunchly Christian, um, take, for example, the Kelb tribe um, remained Christ famously Christian for quite some time, um, and you had converted later, then your, um, your, sal your salary from the army would be much lower as a result. Um, and so this had a sort of direct effect on, on your social standing. If you were, and for the most part during the, the conquest period, the early conquest period particularly, um, if you were part of the movement, you were Arab, right? You know, with few exceptions, few famous exceptions. We know Salman al-Farisi was Persian, for example, et cetera. Um, but for the most part, people who, were, who took part um, in the early Islamic conquest were Arabs. And when I say Arab, I mean somebody from the Arabian Peninsula, because that is, even itself is sort of contested, right? Um, the, the idea of sort of who is and is not an Arab has changed significantly over the course of the last several thousand, you know, hundred, possibly thousands of years. Um, certainly the last 1,500 years, this has changed um, and has expanded. You know, the idea of sort of who is an Arab today is very different from sort of who was an Arab during the early Islamic period. So if you are um, part of the early Islamic conquest, you are an Arab. Um, if you converted when Muhammad was still preaching in Mecca, or maybe when he was in Medina, um, then you would be, you are rewarded basically financially for that. Um, if you joined 
um, the movement um, during the conquest period and then during sort of the early Umayyad periods, um, and you joined on your own, which is to say you converted on your own, you were considered to be a maula, which is to say um, a non-Muslim and sort of like a client. You would have a Muslim sort of almost like a patron um, who is sort of your, your role model or your mentor, um, and in some ways you might be sort of adopted into that person's tribe or that person's, um, maybe to a lesser extent, that person's family, but you were considered um, in a sort of clientage role, and this was sort of a secondary status, um, but nonetheless, you were still um, a Muslim and granted all of the privileges that, that Muslims were granted. Um, eventually, this sort of devolved into, um, particularly during the late Umayyad period, an understanding of sort of Arab supremacy. If you were an Arab, which is to say, um, you were from a tribe um, from the Arabian Peninsula, then you were considered inherently sort of superior to groups, um, to people from um, other regions and people, um, regardless of whether they were Muslim or not. Um, and this was partly what fueled the Abbasid Revolution, um, particularly among Persians who felt that they were considered, had been relegated to sort of a second-class city, like status, um, unjustly, right? Um, despite the fact that many of them had, you know, there were many Persian converts um, who had um, joined um, the administration, who were used to being sort of elites maybe in society, um, and who were suddenly considered secondary to um, to these Arabs um, in the Umayyad administration. Um, and so this sort of um, fueled quite a lot of resentment. Um, I mean, there were, of course, other... Um, I mean, racism, you're right, is not, maybe not the right term to use in this context, but certainly there were uh, understandings of sort of, um, or literary sort of, we have texts that sort of um, identify different people as sort of different races, um, people from different regions, um, and even sort of um, ascribing attributes, attributes to them. Um, and so you do have sort of these racial distinctions and sort of, um, tiers um, or sort of levels um, ascribed to different groups. Um, and so this is a this is sort of a concern. Um, so rulers viewed both Muslims who converted later than perhaps they maybe should have or could have um, as sort of lesser than sort of early converts, particularly Arab converts, because these sort of things are, are, you know, correlated for the most part. You know, if you are not living in the Arabian Peninsula, how could you convert to Islam, you know, as early as somebody... Um, who was living in Mecca alongside Muhammad, right? Um, and so, you know, your sort of ethnic identity, and which was tied into your language, you know, the language that you spoke, um, was also tied into um, your social standing by virtue of the fact that, you know, you weren't necessarily able to convert um, as soon as other people who had been exposed to the movement more um, earlier. Um, and of course, anyone who had not converted was several tiers below that, right? Um, they were second-class citizens, sometimes were even forced to wear um, clothing signifying that they were non-Muslim um, and had various other restrictions placed on them, um, depending on sort of who was ruling and in what context. Um, but these weren't necessarily consistent. Um, so yeah, there was certainly a social hierarchy related to who was Muslim, um, and that sort of correlated to ethnic identity, um, and 
And in addition to this being sort of an administrative, an administrative at like sort of view, this was sort of enshrined into um, caliphal administration. I mean, certainly on the street, you also had cases where um, we have evidence of, of Muslims sort of persecuting non-Muslims, uh, evidence of non-Muslims trying to hide their identity. If they had to wear this special clothing, they would try to sort of cover it up. Um, you even have cases sort of on the street of people um, forcibly or trying to sort of forcibly convert somebody. Um, these are few and far between, but, but they certainly exist. And so when I say, you know, there wasn't really forced conversion outside of these sort of the wars um, and the early um, conquest inside the Arabian Peninsula, that's not entirely true, but systematically, that's certainly not true. But we do have small instances of um, sort of persecution and attempts to sort of forcibly convert people. And this is, you know, done by ordinary sort of um, people to ordinary people. And so it's certainly not officially sanctioned, but shank, excuse me, shank, sanctioned. <laughs> but um, we do have these sorts of cases. So there is a hierarchy. Um, and it is tied to race, it is tied to ethnicity, it is tied to um, language, it is tied to religion. Um, and then, of course, you know, your usual sort of um, factors of wealth and social standing and, you know, gender um, and sort of your status in a household, free or slave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, so, so pretty much satisfaction levels with the new conquerors that depended pretty much on who you were and um, right. who was ruling at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, very much so. Now, this is something that we had mentioned earlier, but I, I kind of want to discuss it a bit further. But the designation Muslim, where does that come from, and how did how did the conquered people, in their own sources, refer to this these conquering people? Were they referred to as Muslims or something else? And how how did early Muslims refer to themselves? Okay, so um, so early Muslims refer to themselves, um, from what we can tell, often as Mu'minun, which is to say believers. Um, possibly the Quran uses Mu'minun far more than it uses Muslimun um, or Muslim. Um, which is to say a submitter, right? Um, and in fact, um, there is a distinction um, in the Quran, um, a very sort of explicit one between um, Muslim and uh, Mu'min. You know, the Bedouins say, and I'm, I can't think of the Arabic right now, but the sort of uh, English paraphrased version um, is the Bedouins say, you know, it's 49, 14 uh, through 15. Um, the Bedouins say, you know, we believe, and, and the Quran admonishes them and say, you know, do not say um, we are, we believe, to say we have submitted because belief has not yet entered your hearts, right? Um, and so um, this is sort of, the Quran itself makes this distinction between um, belief and submission and sort of mu'min, um, believer, and Muslim, um, which is to say submitter. Um, and so, um, and it of course refers to the followers of, um, or its audience as, uh, or its believing audience as Mu'min and more frequently the Muslim as I've said. Um, we see among non-Muslim sources, we don't see the word Muslim used um, for a few decades after the conquest. Um, we see a lot of different terms being used. We see Arabs being used. Um, we see, to a lesser extent, Saracen being used. Um, and then only in the late 7th century, um, to a, uh, and even more so in the early 8th century, do we see the word Muslim or some sort of variation of it start to be used. Um, so the word Muslim sort of um, transferred into sort of Coptic or Greek or um, 
Syriac. Um, and so, um, yeah, the word Muslim isn't, um, among Muslims themselves, I mean, part of the problem here is that many of the sources that we have from the, the Muslim period, with the exception of the Quran, um, which has, there has been a historiographical sort of question over the, the origins of Islam for quite some time now, um, and um, certainly for the last, I would say, 50, 60 years or so, this has been um, a major debate in the field of Islamic studies. And um, so, in particularly in the 1970s, there were a number of scholars who basically um, rejected the entire sort of standard narrative, the standard understanding of Islamic history, um, because many of the sources that we do have in writing um, didn't exist in writing until maybe 100, 100 to 150 years after the events that they purport to talk about. Um, I mean, the Sira of the Prophet, the life of the, the biography of the Prophet by Ibn Ishaq, um, as redacted by his student Ibn Hisham. I mean, Ibn Ishaq uh, was writing in the maybe 750s, and Ibn Hisham was redacting it, editing it in the um, 820s, I believe. Um, and that is, you know, one of our earliest sources. We don't have very many sources um, from the Muslim perspective, um, with the exception, of course, the major exception uh, of the Quran, um, from the period of the events that it purports to cover. The Quran itself was also brought into question for quite some time. In, in 2010, there was an article published by uh, Benam Sadagi, um, which did some carbon dating of an early Quran from, um, from Yemen, um, which proved that it is um, relatively, we can relatively confidently say that it is probably from the time period um, in which the Quran was compiled and codified, codified um, which was under the reign of Uthman in the 650s. Um, but we, uh, you know, so we can say with reasonable certainty that the Quran is from, uh, or was compiled and written down and sort of, um, you know, um, put into the form of a codex in the form of a book um, in the 650s, probably, um, which is what our sort of narrative understanding of, or understanding of sort of the text that we have, that's what, that's what our histories say. But many of our other sources come from much, much later. So there's a question of, um, you know how accurately these are um, these histories are conveying um, the events that they purport to convey. Went off on a tangent. All of that is to say that um, <laughs> uh, in terms of what Muslims were calling themselves, I mean, our evidence is from um, maybe 150 years at the earliest after the, the time period um, it's covering. And therefore, if there were changes in self-identification, if people were calling themselves Mu'min. Um, in the early 7th century and were calling themselves Muslim by the, the 8th uh, or 9th centuries, um, then that might, that shift um, might not actually be traced because what is being written and edited and redacted in the 8th or even the early 9th centuries um, might actually reflect the norms of that time period better um, than some of the norms that existed um, during the 7th century. Um, so in the case of Ibn Hisham, redacting Ibn Ishaq, I mean, we know that some of his changes, a few of them, reflect a sort of shift in understanding of Islamic history um, from the 740s, 750s, to the 820s. Um, 
so in a lot of ways, we can't really, we don't really know what Muslims were calling themselves. Um, but our, our sources say that they were calling themselves Muslim. And they talked about their conversion in the context of Islam. Your conversion would be your submission, therefore your Islam, right? Um, and there's less of a focus on um, sort of the idea of a believer um, as a sort of something that may or may not be totally, totally distinct from a Christian or a Jew. Um, as for non-Muslims, um, we do have earlier records, but they are still some decades as opposed to centuries later. Um, and the earliest ones don't use the term Muslim at all. Um, we start to see Muslim emerge, like I said, the um, I think our, the first case I saw of it was maybe around 680, but I think that was even sort of a weird version of it. Um, but for the most part, you don't see emergence of that term being used um, or a variation of that term being used in Syriac or, or other languages until the, the 8th century. Um, so we see Arab, we see Saracen, we see um, like Hagarines, basically. We see a lot of, a lot of strange terms, but we, we, don't see, we don't see Muslim for quite some time. Understood. And I mean, this brings me to, I guess, the last cluster of questions that I had. Now, when writing history about, <clears throat> excuse me, about early Islam, what do historians rely on? What is a documentary source and what is a narrative source? And what's more important right. when writing history? Okay. Ideally, you would have multiple sources that were written by a contemporary witness to the events um, being covered, um, as well as archaeological evidence to corroborate it or um, evidence from outside of a particular com particular community to corroborate it. Um, you would have multiple sources saying, you know, the exact same thing or near nearly the exact same thing, right? Or all indicating sort of one understanding of the events that happened. Um, when we are dealing with, um, first of all, you never have ever two accounts that exactly corroborate one another because you know, everybody's point of view is slightly different. That's the case in the modern context, right? Um, in the context of early Islam, we have, like I said, almost no sources from the time period of early Islam from the Muslim perspective. Um, the sole exception is the Quran, and of course, what an exception it is, right? Um, but the Quran itself does not necessarily, I mean, it, it, there is a lot in the Quran, but very little sort of, um, history or sort of, you know, discussion of what is exactly is happening um, with this community. Um, so we do have very little to go on. Most of our sources um, come from later time periods. And so I've talked about sort of, you know, the fact that maybe they've been edited or, or um, the understanding of what happened during that period has shifted based on sort of an understanding of what Islam is and what Islam maybe used to be being somewhat different, um, slightly different, right? Um, and so that is that is a question. Um, in terms of narrative sources versus documentary sources. Um, so a documentary source would be a source, um, I mean, I think you could interpret that in a few different ways, but I do want to talk about the importance of sort of um, transmitting stories and transmitting histories in particular um, orally versus um, through text, through written text. Um, and in the early, the pre-Islamic and early Islamic context, uh, you do see a prioritization of oral transmission of stories, which is to say histories, um, biographies, um, 
and I mean, plenty of other information besides, right? But those are some of the two that we're most concerned with. Um, and so, I mean, this is due to a number of reasons. Um, one has to do with the relative lack of writing materials, right? Um, paper does not come to the Middle East until the ninth century. Um, so what you have to write on in pre-Islamic and early Islamic Arabia, for example, were um, if you had quite a lot of money, you could import papyrus from Egypt, or you could, if you valued the um, a written record um, and were willing to also spend quite a lot of money on it, you could um, use parchment, which is basically um, dried animal skins. Um, but these would have been rare and very costly to produce. You also had um, animal bones, shoulder bones of camels are sort of larger and relatively flatter um, and could also serve as things to write on, right? But for the most part, um, things to write on in a permanent fashion were in short supply. Um, so there is also a well-developed sort of oral tradition of sort of memorizing um, things and sort of learning through oral means. So you would memorize something that somebody recited to you orally. You would then practice and recite it back to them multiple times to corroborate your understanding of it and preservation of what you would still call text, but sort of transmitted orally um, was um, incredibly important. It was incredibly important even for the um, passing on of the um, Quran, the Quran, um, based on our understanding of the life of Muhammad, um, was transmitted primarily orally until its codification and compilation under Uthman. Um, and the reason, the only reason that it um, it was compiled into this codex, into a written textual form, was due to the fact that the people, um, that the companions of Muhammad who had um, memorized different portions of the Quran, and usually multiple um, companions had memorized sort of some of the same pieces, um, were being dispersed further and further away to different parts of the, the expanding empire, um, and in some cases were dying in battle um, or of old age. And so you needed a standard written text compiled um, so that, you know, these portions of the Quran would not be lost forever, right? And so the importance of oral and written tradition and the sort of relative, the placing of sort of the oral tradition above the written tradition has, there are a lot of reasons for it. There's a lot of history behind it, um, but it is part of the reason that we don't have historical texts from the time period um, that we are focusing on here. And in terms of the archaeological evidence, we've been able to find some things that support the early Islamic or sort of the narrative we have of early Islam, but many of the things that um, we could use to corroborate are, are not really accessible to us. Um, in many cases, for example, the expansion of um, Mecca um, in order to accommodate you know, several million um, people on pilgrimage has resulted in sometimes very old archaeological sites that might have given us more information um, sort of being unfortunately sort of destroyed by virtue of sort of expanding the space um, by which, you know, in which people um, perform the pilgrimage. So um, we have some archaeological records. We have some um, historical records um, or textual, written textual records um, from the sort of later end of the early Islamic period. And then the best way we can go about corroborating the information we have is to look to sources from the non-Muslim or outside of the Muslim tradition. And um, this is part of what fueled this sort of um, revisionist perspective um, that emerged in the 1970s, this questioning of sort of, well, you know, how can we say anything um, 
you know, how can we verify anything from the early Islamic period if we don't have Muslim sources from this time period? Uh, let's take a look and see what non-Muslim sources have to say. If they don't match up exactly, then we, you know, we just, the whole project is um, sort of doomed. We should just, you know, take, you know, take our ball and go home, right? Um, we do see, um, and this was certainly the case for um, Hagarism, written by Patricia Cronin and Michael Cook, um, they tried to look at, they tried to sort of corroborate Islamic history um, by using non-Muslim sources and found, for the most part, um, a lack of corroboration. I think that there was a focus on a lack of corroboration, frankly. Um, and since then, we have found um, many non-Muslim sources that do match up with parts of Islamic history, but we, you know, the record is still, in terms of corroboration, you know, um, inherently spotty. We we do not have many sources that um, went into the Arabian Peninsula and can talk about these things um, that occurred in the Arabian Peninsula, right, um, from outside of the Muslim tradition. We mostly have evidence from the conquest period and beyond when the empire is expanding, when the caliphate is expanding into or up beyond the Arabian Peninsula. So we have, we can corroborate some things through, by comparing Muslim sources to non-Muslim sources, by comparing Muslim and non-Muslim sources to, you know, some archaeological records, mostly also outside of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but this is very slow work. It is very sort of painstaking. And even if we do find sources that cover the same things and during the same time period, um, inherently they're not going to say the exact same thing because they're maybe preoccupied with different questions, different reasons for writing these things down um, or for documenting them in one way or another. Um, and different points of view, um, which are inherently going to result in different records, right? And in terms of these sources that are from non-Muslims, how early are they? And how, how is their depiction of Muslims different than the way Muslims depict themselves in later narrative sources? Right. So the earliest ones we have are quite early. We do have, I mean, they're very few and they're very brief, but we have a few sources from the conquest period that describe some Muslims as conquerors um, and as sort of raiders. And there's sort of, there's a representation of sort of like fear, right? Um, you know, who are these people coming and taking over our town? And, um, but there's not too much detail. And, and as I mentioned, there's not any reference to religion at all. There is no, I mean, the word Islam or Muslim is, is just simply not present during this, this early conquest period. Um, only after a few decades of sort of regular interaction do we see evidence that non-Muslims in Syria and Egypt and Iraq and other places um, recognize the Arabs who have left the Arabian Peninsula, um, who are you know, part of the caliphal administration, um, recognize them as having a distinct religion, as bringing a lot of different sort of cultural norms and different religious understandings along with them. But we don't see that right away. Understood. And, and a potential issue one might see with narrative sources is their depiction of events differently or more positively uh, than they actually were. Now, this same can be said of documentary sources from non-Muslims. I mean, what's the methodology that scholars use when they're trying to figure out, I mean, what actually happened? Because, I mean, there's a bias on both sides. Uh, non-Muslim sources right. might depict their conquerors in a stranger light than what actually happened, or they could not have. So, right. I mean, what's the methodology that scholars use? Right. I think many scholars would agree that um, in some of these early examples or early references to the conquest, there is sort of an, like, sort of a... a misrepresentation of sorts that, you know, these events are being represented as much more sort of terrifying than they actually were. Um, and so there is no, 
there isn't really a consensus among historians today about sort of how you should weigh the evidence that you have, right? You know, should you inherently assume that one um, one account is being truthful and wherever, you know, different accounts vary from that one account, um, those other accounts are being disingenuous or, um, you know, should you consider both of them to be suspect? And if that is the case, then how suspect should you consider each one to be? Um, you know, do you just throw everything out and, and just say, you know, I can't, there's no way we can ever find this out or, um, you know, what do you do? And so most historians, I would say, um, tread very carefully um, and try to sort of describe the different sources that they have or sort of consider the different sources that they have where things are, where accounts are corroborated. Of course, that's easy, right? You know, we can't, say with total certainty that that is correct. But we can say, you know, this is probably based on the fact that we have multiple accounts saying roughly the same thing. These are probably the, you know, the, the general, um, the major events that are listed here probably happen. We probably have the general contours of the, the events, you know, as they, as they transpired. Um, whereas the details might be harder to, to discern, right? Um, and I think that is, I think where a lot of historians sort of stand right now, but I also think I mean, we still have many, many historians who are ready to sort of dismiss um, either all Muslim sources um, or all non-Muslim sources as totally fabricated and therefore of no use at all, right? And that usually is the result of a certain uh, a polemical stance, um, or at least that's my perspective on it. But I think historians do try to be careful, for the most part, in how they go about analyzing these sources. Nobody can be totally free of their own biases, right? And of course, we we all have different perspectives on what we're reading and what we're looking at, and we all have different sort of areas of expertise that influence sort of the conclusions we might draw from a, a particular document or set of documents or you know material evidence that we that we've examined, but. Ultimately, I do think historians try to be careful, and so, you know, the best way to go about this is to sort of weigh the evidence and try to figure out, you know, what, how, what to do with what you have. Sometimes, I mean, I have heard from, from my mentors that trying to find out what really happened is sort of a fool's errand, and the best you can do is to take a look at your evidence um, or your sources and see what they can tell you. You know, maybe you, you have a source that talks about the events that happened in, you know, in the year 82 history, right? And you have another source from in a different language from a different religious tradition that also covers that year. Um, and one talks about conquest and the other talks about famine. Um, and, you know, what do you do with that? But what you can do with that, you, maybe you can't confirm exactly how the, the conquests went and, and, you know, if there were conquests because maybe the other source doesn't talk about them at all. And, you know, that's strange. Um, but, you know, the, the source that talks about the conquest doesn't mention a famine or a plague um, at all, whereas the other one is completely preoccupied with that. What you can draw from that is that almost certainly the people in that particular region were terrified, and there was probably quite a lot of chaos, right? Um, we have, for a more concrete example, um, in the context of the first fitna, right, we understand that um, Ali was the fourth of the Rashidun Caliph, um, and much of his um, caliphate was spent um, 
in sort of turmoil, right, in the, the first fitna. Many of our non-Muslim sources say during those during that window um, of his reign, there was there was no leader of the Muslims at all, and that is mentioned by a number of different non-Muslim sources. Um, and so, what that tells us isn't necessarily that there was no leader. It doesn't tell us anything about the fitna itself. What happened during this this first fitna? Um, what it does tell us is that there probably weren't formal delegations being sent to rulers um, outside of the Muslim conquest or outside of the, the, the Muslim caliphate. And it tells us that there wasn't a focus on interacting with foreign leaders. There wasn't a focus on sort of expansion. Um, the conquest essentially stopped during the reign of Ali, right? Um, and so we can find something, we can sort of figure some things out, but it's often not necessarily, quote unquote, what really happened. It's not a clear sort of history. It's usually sort of the implications of what that history um, describes. So, Professor, as we are nearing the end, I wanted to ask, what is Sirah and Hadith, and why is there skepticism in regard to them as reliable sources of information? Okay, so this is um, a very interesting and, yes, you're, uh, a, a question that could take quite some time to answer. Um, so, the question of sort of Hadith and, and how, to, how to analyze them is, well, it's complicated, right? Um, so we know that there are two different components to a hadith, right? There is the isnad, which is the, train, the chain of transmission, and ideally the chain of transmission will um, pass along from, it, it represents sort of how this report was transmitted, and usually, ideally, um, from a Muslim perspective, this will go all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad, um, who was either the person in the hadith, right, or, or the person, you know, reporting it. Um, and then it's passed along through people who can be um, corroborated by al-Hadithun, by people who are studying these hadiths. It can be confirmed that the people in the chain of, of transmission were, you know, in the same place at the same time. It is possible for them to have transmitted this hadith, this report, um, onto the next person, and then from that person onto the person after that, and so on and so forth. Right? Um, this is hadith analysis. This is a very long-standing tradition among hadith scholars in Islam. And so, you know, based on how well you can follow that chain of transmission, you know, you assess the the validity of, of that hadith, right, of that report. And so, you know, if, if somebody is missing in the chain of transmission, then, you know, that that might raise questions about its, its validity. If it doesn't go all the way back to the Prophet, that is something that, that brings it into question. Um, so you assess its soundness, its, its potential legitimacy based on that. Western academic scholars, in particularly in the 20th century, took a look at this system and said, well, okay, you are examining this chain of transmission. This is um, a, you know, complex analysis, and it is, it is incredibly thorough and methodical. Um, but what, um, but there are a couple of things that were missing in this, in this methodology, which is to say, um, you can verify a, train, a chain of transmission all you want, but ultimately, many of these cities contradict each other. Many of them contain supernatural elements that, if you are looking at things from an academic, which is to say, secular, which is well, maybe not secular, but from a perspective that does not, that is not religious. You know, how can you say, how can you verify something, a report that contains supernatural elements, as true? Right. Um, of course, this is deeply non-religious, and so, um, and furthermore. Just because you can chase or trace, excuse me, a chain of transmission um, all the way back to the, the Prophet Muhammad doesn't mean that 
it is legitimate because it is quite possible. And um, several scholars in the 1950s and 1970s, um, uh, Joseph Schacht and uh, uh, Jungbull in particular, argued that you know that doesn't mean that a significant number of these reports, these hadiths, were not fabricated. Um, a good fabricator, quote unquote, and I say that you know in scare quotes. Um, so we'll take a look at the most um, the hadiths with the the best chance of transmission, the most sort of um, sort of sound tested, um, proven chains of transmission, and just take those and apply those to a hadith that says you know whatever he he may want, right? And so that is where the criticism of um, hadith studies comes from. On the other hand, often the hadiths are some of our earliest, and if we take the, this chain of transmission um, as sound, if we take the metan, the, the, the actual sort of content, the information um, that the report is conveying, um, if we take that into account, these are some of our earliest sources for Islamic history. The problem is that there is a question about you know, how, to, um, how to weigh them in our sort of, you know, historiographical sort of assessment um, of how, of their validity, of their veracity. And so many scholars, I think a lot of scholars today, take a look at Hadith and say, you know, it is difficult for us to confirm whether or not these accounts um, actually reflect something that happened, whether the Matin can actually provide historical data to us. Uh, what they can tell us is maybe something about religious ideals and social mores during the early period. Um, Maybe they can tell us about um, sort of ideal interactions or sort of esteemed interactions or things that early Muslims, um, or not things. Um, I'm sorry, when you say early Muslims, uh, what time period are you referring to? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, so for the most part, um, the hmm, that's a, that is a really good question. I think depending on, we could take a look at Hadith and... I think that could be very, very broad. That could go, the idea of sort of taking a look at a hadith and drawing sort of ideas about religious ideals and social norms or social mores from it, I mean, that could extend fairly late um, into the middle period. Um, and so... You know, I'm going to revise my statement, actually, um, because I think what it can tell us is um, we could possibly take a look at some of these, some, like, a hadith, and sort of, it's possible we could work backwards and identify, if we want to assume that it is um, fabricated, identify when it was fabricated based on the sort of, um, the way that it uses language. Um, we could maybe tie it to the way that language is being used. Um, by other writers in maybe the 10th or 11th century. Um, but I think, I don't, act, I don't actually like that perspective because I think that that is very, like, very cynical. Um, I think Hadiths can tell us something about um, the ideal view of what the early Muslim community was like. And I think that that changed over the course of, Muslim his, of Islamic history. Um, but I think you can tell us about sort of um, the ideal um, believer. It can tell us about um, social norms and sort of 
um, how one should behave in society based on sort of taking a hadith um, or basically, you know, putting those religious ideals and those social mores and embodying them in a story basically about the early Muslim community, about the, the Prophet and his companions. But frankly, every scholar has a different view, Muslim, non-Muslim, Western, in the Western Academy, in any sort of, or in, you know, any variety of sort of educational context, in any sort of religious context, I think um, there are different views on what the Hadith and, and what they can tell us, what a mountain can tell us, what Nisnad can tell us, um, and how to interpret those things, right? So I think I will leave it at that. Understood. And when it comes to Sirah, what are some methodological tools that historians use to figure out what what's real and what's not real? Right. So that is also, I mean, the Sirah suffers from the same concerns that I've been talking about, these sort of historiographical concerns. How can we verify the narratives that are being passed on to us? The Sirah in particular, um, they have a sort of, they often have these sort of incomplete chains of transmission, but nonetheless, they are there. Um, they don't take us where as far as back as the prophet often they don't take us as far forward as the time in which you know the the seer is being written um but they do exist in in some accounts in many accounts actually so in terms of the seer i mean we have the same questions of you know can we corroborate any of these stories outside of the muslim tradition can we corroborate them with any sort of archaeological evidence often the answer is no we can take a look at for instance, with you know Ibn Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham's Sira, we can take a look at sort of how Ibn Hisham edited uh, Ibn Ishaq's text. He, in very few instances, did change some language and the way that um, a report or a sort of narrative was presented. Um, usually, though, he did very little, and so we can say that there wasn't too much change between maybe the 740s up to the 820s. But I mean, for the most part, how you view Hadith, for example is probably not too far from how you view Sira in terms of its accuracy and your ability to verify it and, you know, how you use it as a historical source. Ultimately, you have to put some trust in these documents if you're going to do Islamic history because, you know, in many cases, they're the only source we have. And that's the case for any sort of, for any history that is not modern history, it is very, it is often very difficult to find sources that corroborate one another and that, you know, can be verified beyond, you know, just the single text or the single piece of evidence you might have. Anytime you're doing ancient history, um, that is even more the case, right? Um, just because you have a one document describing the events of a year, for example, and none others doesn't mean that, you know, you can take that document at face value in any tradition whatsoever, in any historical context whatsoever, without having some sort of other you know, without having an eyewitness record or without having multiple eyewitness records or archaeological evidence that support, supports that, you know. We know that Abdel Malik built the Dome of the Rock when he did and, you know, put these mosaic inscriptions on the inside of it that were focused on non-Muslims in particular, um, that were sort of anti-Trinitarian, and we know that because the Dome of the Rock is still standing, right? With these, these mosaic inscriptions you know, along the, you know, along the, the sort of upper areas of the walls. We know all of this. We can corroborate this. So that is something that, you know, is not in question. But ultimately, how you, how historians of any religious tradition, of any sort of affiliation do history depends on, on 
the trust that they place in their sources, and maybe even the relationship that they have with their sources, and how they use them, and you know, to what extent they take them at face value, to what extent they find them suspicious, and to what extent they try to read between the lines, right? Understood. And to be clear, uh, you had mentioned this before, but I just wanted to make it clear again. We don't have much, well, apart from the, the narrative sources that describe these events, we don't have evidence of writing or any records from anything like the Muslims when they went to Abyssinia in the time of the Prophet, or from the Jews who were there in Medina, or from the Christians, or from any other groups. We pretty much have no geological or documentary evidence from these groups. Right. Is there a reason that's the case? Have you not excavated enough? That is always, I always think that we have not excavated enough, and that is probably the answer for us lacking corroborating archaeological evidence. And sometimes that is about what people choose to focus their attention on, and sometimes that is about difficulties in going to a particular region or possibly the cost, uh, you know, whether whether a government will allow you to go to a certain region and excavate, whether that is something you can get funding for from sources for academic funding, whether that's the government or foundations or, you know, what have you. Sometimes that even depends on when, if some place, ha if a place has been excavated or an area has been excavated, sometimes that depends on when, because archaeological methods have improved significantly over the course of the past century. So sometimes, certainly in um, areas of modern-day Israel-Palestine, where the focus has been on biblical archaeology, we know that in prior to even the 1960s or possibly even the 1990s or later, sometimes in the search for biblical era materials, things from later periods were simply sort of cast aside. So we have no idea what might have, what sort of evidence might have existed from, say, the conquest period or the Umayyad period or, <clears throat> excuse me, even as late as the Ottoman period, right? So, you know, it could be a result of that. But I am a strong believer that if we were able to excavate certain areas, we would probably find a lot more archaeological evidence to corroborate some of these historical sources that we have. Right. So I think that um, the more archaeological work that we are able to do, the more likely we are to find good evidence. In the context of, for example, um, the Muslims um, traveling to Abyssinia, we don't have evidence. Uh, we don't have any sort of corroborating evidence written in Gez to, to talk about that particular event. We don't have archaeological records. We do have corroborating evidence. I'm sorry. When you say Gez, what, what is that? Oh, sorry. Gez is uh, Ethiopic. It's the language of, of Ethiopic. Okay, thank you. Um, yes. So um, we don't have records um, describing that that um, that delegation, that that group, that visit um, to the Negus. We do have, however, um, corroborating evidence in the form of Estelle um, describing the war between the Hemurites and um, the Aksumites. Um, and uh, I think we might even have evidence of this sort of particular event where um, this war elephant was brought over um, to fight against um, the, the Yemenis, to fight against the Hemurites. Um, and so we, often the record that we do have that can corroborate some of these narratives is it's spotty. We're missing significant portions of it just due to sort of random circumstance. So my hope is we can do a lot more archaeology, and we are able to do some. We're um, some without, you know, despite political and sort of financial concerns, there has been in the last 10 years in particular a 
significant expansion, a huge expansion of what is called sort of satellite archaeology, in which you find satellite imagery, and you can actually look at an area of land and take a look at the, the ruins emerge. And sometimes you get better views than you would have if you'd gone and excavated it in person. We have a better understanding of sort of these pre-Islamic Arabian desert kites, for example, in which animals are sort of herded into um, like a walled-off area um, and then sort of hunted. And we have a better understanding of sort of village structures, very, very ancient villages um, throughout the Middle East in the Arabian Peninsula, as well as areas of um, Jordan and Syria. Sometimes places we could go, sometimes places we couldn't. Sometimes things that, you know, are right by even a, a road system and, and because they, they don't stand out to the sort of naked eye, but you can see them from above, suddenly it becomes very clear that there is a site that could and should be excavated there. So we have seen a lot of significant advancements, but I think that there's still obviously much, 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 much more that could be and should be done. Understood. And as a historian, how valid do you think the Sirah is in in terms of knowing uh, what actually happened? And I know we talked about not no not trying to find out what actually happened, but as a historian, I mean, how authentic do you think the Sirah is, and how should we approach it? Do we approach it with immense skepticism, uh, or or how exactly should we approach this source? Right. So I have. My position on this has changed over the course of my education um, in Islamic history. Um, of course, as somebody who was not raised within the, the, the tradition, um, my perspective is, you know, I, I've always been taught about Islam and Islamic history from a sort of Western, from an academic perspective. Um, and I recognize that in many ways that is a shortcoming. Um, in other ways, it grants me the freedom to, to be skeptical um, in ways, well, not grants me the freedom, but um, in other ways, um, if I were a skeptic, this would not be sort of, nobody would bat an eye. As it happens, I am inclined to believe that at the bare minimum, the general outlines of the biography of Muhammad are true. There is not really any reason, in my view, to fabricate this out of nothing. Like, why, you know, what is the motivation there? Why would somebody do that? I don't see any reason to view the Sira as any less legitimate than a non-Muslim source, as any less legitimate than many of the sources we have for other periods in history that come from sources that were written down later, that come from sources that um, might have had a particular perspective or a particular reason for writing things down that might have been very polemical. There is, or might have you know, been written with an agenda to promote a certain viewpoint. There is no reason to hold the Sira as more skeptical or as more sort of suspicious um, than any of these other kinds of sources, in my opinion, because there is an attempt in many of these sort of narratives of, uh, that are contained, particularly within the Sira of uh, Ibn Hisham, because there are very, very early attempts of sort of transmission of these stories before that has become standardized, I'm inclined to hold those in higher regard because you do see an attempt to sort of trace these, these narratives. Now, have some details maybe been left out or embellished or, you know, slightly edited? I think probably. But I think that at minimum, the sort of general outline of the events of Muhammad's life and the events of the, the early Islamic period are almost certainly true. It is unfortunate that we do not have corroborating evidence. So that is always, you know, that has to be, I have to say that that comes with an asterisk, right? We have to 
in order for us to, to be confident in it, in you know, the validity of these sources, we have to have outside of, uh, evidence. That's the case for any, any sort of historical study. But barring that, to me, the scholars who passed down this information, the people who considered this information important enough to pass on, and of course, you know, it is foundationally important to, to the early period of Islam and to the sort of, under, you know, Islam's understanding of its own history, I think, I think that the people who passed these narratives along were, were quite responsible about them, particularly in the context of the era. The Hadith, I, I, am, I have different views depending on, you know, the particular Hadith, right? And that's the case for you know, everybody who studies Hadith. Um, but for the Sira, I, I do hold it in relatively high regard. Yeah. Uh, what is Tariq and what, who are some important authors in that genre and what are some important works in that genre? And how do historians today who are writing for students in, you know, university, how do they utilize those sources when they write their own histories of Islam? Right. So in terms of Tariq, uh, scholars, okay, so important scholars in the tradition. Um, the first scholar who is always, always referenced is Tabari, right? So Tabari was writing um, in the late 9th century, not late, sometime in the 9th century, maybe early 10th, um, so 3rd-ish century history. Um, Tabari is used by many, many historians. He is like the the historian that I, I think he's referenced among English language uh, texts on early Islam. I would say he is referenced more than anyone else. And the reason for that is because he is, his history, history is like, the first history to be translated entirely into English. That is, I think, pretty much it. I think that is the reason that people use him so much. Okay. Um, I, I, quite honestly, I mean, he is very early, and he has done his due diligence. He, you know, his work is excellent. But there are a number of other scholars who, who also, I mean, fit those parameters. I mean, we also have Baladari, Fatoulal excuse me, Baldan, been a morning, the history of the, the conquest. Um, or the conquest of, you know, the, re the realms or the regions is an incredible source. We have a history of, we have histories of Mecca, we have histories of Syria. Ibn Asakir, who is a, a little bit later, wrote a history of the city of Damascus. Um, you know, we have a number of historical sources that I think are neglected in favor of Tabari, sometimes because Tabari is right there and Tabari is easier to use because we, he was translated by respected scholars in the field. Um, he was translated from front to from front to end in the 1980s and 1990s, um, and so scholars just you know reach for him first. But I think there are a number of other historians who aren't even often referenced who do just as good a job. Akbar Misr, for example, the the sort of history of Egypt is an uh, an important one. We have I mean so many different historians that are often used just by specialists of a particular region or a particular time period or maybe even more than a particular time period because Tabari covers the early period. A lot of scholars, you know, historians who write, you know, histories are not used nearly as frequently. And I'm not really sure why that is, but other than sort of the, the convenience factor. Um, but I think it is a problem in the field. Understood. Thank you so much. And Professor, well, you went to, you know, arguably one of the top NELC Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations programs, perhaps in the world. And you've worked with, you know, one of the most renowned academics and experts in this field, Professor Fred Downer. Now, what advice do you have for aspiring historians of this period? And are there any works that you would suggest that uh, students pick up? 
Okay. Um, so in terms of students who are interested in working in this field, um, if you're interested in early Islamic history, well, I have a lot of recommendations. The first is learn as much Arabic and or Persian and or Syriac and or Turkish, well, maybe less Turkish if you're doing the early period, but, but learn your languages and work in those languages where, where possible. Working with translations, despite it being convenient, is can get you into dangerous territory because you're not actually looking at you know what a text is saying, and translations can be weird. I would say also, I mean, this sort of dovetails with some things I've said earlier, but respect your sources. And when I say respect your sources, don't manipulate them into saying something that you've decided is going to be your conclusion, because you can find any source and manipulate it into saying what you want it to say. Um, if you choose the right sort of quotations and interpret them in, in particular ways. I think the sources in many times speak for themselves both directly and indirectly. Um, and so while you want to maintain a healthy sort of, um, not suspicion, but reservation about sort of declaring that source to be true in every possible way or false in every possible way, um, you know, your sources can tell you quite a lot. And so I think the, the goal of the historian is to see what the sources are, are saying without taking them at face value and sort of interpreting around what is just written plain on the page. And then in terms of important text, I think that depends on what sort of subfield you're interested in. So I was interested in conversion from early on. Um, I mentioned Richard Bullitt. I took classes with him at Columbia. But um, more than anything, I wanted to work with Fred Donner, who, who studies the early Islamic period and sort of understands it so beautifully. I his writing spoke to me sort of in a way that no other scholars did, um, which is why I wanted to work with him so much. And so I think that is partly because it's so nuanced and I think partly because it is, I, I think it is very careful. Um, and so I would, I do like many of uh, Fred Donner's works. I would say for any scholar, um, if you're interested in doing something similar to that particular scholar or you like that particular scholar's point of view, read what they have written, but don't take everything at face value, right? So I think, for example, um, I've talked quite a bit about um, Donner's Muhammad and the Believers, which was published in 2010, maybe 2011. Many scholars have, uh, not every scholar, not every academic in the field of early Islamic history agrees with all of the conclusions in that book. And in a lot of ways, um, I have a different opinion as well, um, but I benefited greatly from reading it. It did change my thinking about the field significantly. Um, and about my understanding of early Islamic history. And so I would say read with a healthy skepticism, but don't immediately jump to conclusions. Let things sort of marinate. Um, who else would I recommend reading? I'm now staring at my bookshelf. I would say go to the primary sources. Read, if your Arabic's not good enough, start with your Tabari, right? <laughs> um, read your Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hasham in translation by Guillaume. Once your Arabic's good, read them in the original Arabic and read your Baladuri read, read some hadiths, read as weird as it sounds, you know, peruse through Bukhari and Muslim and these other, you know, important texts, read, you know, read the Quran just to get a feel for sort of what the Quran, you know, how, how you, and think about it differently, not just as um, a source of scripture, not just as a, a source of sort of religious inspiration, and it is, you know, those things and more, right, but read it from an academic perspective and try to sort of train yourself to do that. Um, which is, again, not to say that you are going to be inherently skeptical of everything that the Quran says or take everything at face value, but sort of, you know, read it and sort of see, well, you know, what is this text telling me? What can I, what is it sort of 
you know, what can I say about sort of um, its structure or its it's the way that it, it sort of uses language or the way that it describes its own histories or the way that it connects itself to other religious traditions? What can those things tell us that maybe haven't been said before um, or it, that bring us a slightly new and more nuanced understanding of what Islam is and what Islam was and sort of how different people have interpreted it at, at different points in time? Understood. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. Uh, do you have anything in the works right now? Any articles you're writing? Any books or any programs? Yes, I'm right. Right. So I am writing an article um, on the Quran and its sort of narrative structure. Actually, when I start talk, when I talk about structure, that's sort of what I've been thinking about lately. And I am developing my dissertation into a book. Although that is um, sort of uh, that is something that will uh, be a focus toward the summer. Our semester is just ending here at Bowdoin, and so um, I've been teaching lots of students about um, Islam, and I've been teaching students about conversion and sort of what that process looks like. Um, so uh, be on the lookout for an article about the Quran and its narrative structure, um, and eventually a book about conversion in the early Islamic period, particularly um, in Syria and Iraq, particularly among Syriac-speaking uh, populations. I should note um, also that um, I could talk quite a lot about conquest in a, from a very sort of military perspective, and I hope that the language I used was not too troublesome. Um, in a lot of contexts, I was, you know, saying thing. I was focusing on conquest um, more so than on sort of um, ex, or sort of on you know ideas of expansion and that sort of thing, and less on sort of the development of society and and. That's not necessarily the focus I always want to take. I think it is important to look at sort of interactions beyond just sort of a military focus. Um, and um, because that's, you know, the early Islamic society wasn't just its army. Um, there was there was much more going on there. And so I, I just wanted to make that final note. Wonderful. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that's it. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Mudur. Um You took out a lot of time in your very busy schedule to give us a lot of information and it was a very very insight conversation and i want to thank you once again for being a guest thank you this is i i've enjoyed listening to the podcast um and i appreciate the opportunity to talk about all of this um so thank you so much for having me on it was it was wonderful to talk to you you're very welcome mm-hmm.